How many times did Jesus visit Jerusalem during the last six months of his life? One, two, three, four, or he stayed there the whole time? Please, everybody, say three. Three. Yeah, you learned it. Okay, you got this down pat three times. Which of the following customs were, are related to death and burial that were in vogue at the time that Jesus was ministering to the Jewish community? Since we're going to be talking about uh, Lazarus coming up here, which of these were there? At the moment of death, they would let out loud shrieks to let others know that the person has passed away. Yes or no? That is true. Okay, you were, that's the way you communicated to people outdoors or people in the neighborhood. You would scream very loud. That's your way of communicating that the death has just taken place. With every group who visited, the grieving family and wailers would try to get louder and louder. That is true. Okay, to, act, to try to you know, show great, great mourning. If the, adult, the dead adult was unmarried, they would perform a type of wedding ceremony before the burial. Yes or no? It's very. It's fifty-fifty. I would say false, but it is true. Okay, back in that time, they would do this if they wanted the person, you know, not to be single. Okay, they would hire mourners who often were employed by the family. That is true. They would do that. Embalming or mummification allowed burials to wait up to a whole week after someone died before the burial. That is not true. Not in the area where Jesus ministered. It was in some of the other foreign countries, but not in the Jewish community. There was no embalming, so burial was the same day as the person's death. That is true, okay, because the climate had an impact on that. They often used caves or cutouts for entire families, so many graves could contain multiple bodies. That is true. Okay, the wealthier had more elaborate tombs or isolated caves for burial of a single person or body. That is true, Joseph of Arimathea, for example. Bones were collected after a few years and put into boxes so as to make room for bodies of other family members who would be buried in the same tomb. That is true. Anybody remember what they called those little boxes? called them ossuaries, and they have a lot of those today, and uh, markings on the ossuaries give us a lot of insight, different families and, and uh, some of the genealogical records. Many in the Middle East believe the spirit of the deceased person stayed nearby until the fourth day after they died. That way that person would be able to hear the mourning and expressions of love, of the love that was lost. It is true. That's what the Jews had. Because what day does Jesus show up for Lazarus' funeral? The fourth day that he has died. At the fourth day, the implication is Lazarus is really good and dead. Yeah, he's good and dead because his spirit would be gone too. Therefore, there could be no recovery. It was beyond hope. And that's why there's the fourth day in play here uh, because of some of these customs that they had. Men alone usually accompanied the body to the gravesite for the first for the burial. It is true that typically men alone were the ones that would go to the gravesite. That, and again, do we have accounts where some ladies went, like in uh, the widow of Nain, was she there following the procession? 
The answer is yes. Okay, that was not the norm. Usually the ladies were supposed to stay at home. And when Mary and Martha, they run to the tomb as well. That's very unusual. Um, but that plays into some of these customs. So let's talk a little bit about all these things. We're headed not to John 11 yet. We're going to get there. But we're headed to Luke 17. Because between Luke 17 and the middle of chapter 17, John 11 fits in. Luke is recording all these events that are happening in that last few weeks before Jesus gets to Jerusalem. Um, but Jesus gets near Jerusalem during the course of Luke 17, and that's where we have Lazarus dying, and Jesus is within miles of Jerusalem, and then he'll head away again, but he doesn't enter into Jerusalem. So now we have to start blending the accounts. Luke has a, a variety of different details. He's recording the messages. He's recording the preaching that is done by Jesus, and we talked about this, and just to set the scene, one of the things he talked about is God's attitude towards sinners, since the common teaching was God hates sinners. God delights in the destruction of the damned. And that was taught by the Pharisees. That's taught in the synagogues. This was a popular mindset that Jesus is going to have to eliminate and contradict, and he's going to have to challenge. So he does in Luke 15, and the way he does it is he gives that threefold parable that gives the stories of things lost, found, and rejoicing in heaven over the sinner that's found. There is also amongst the Pharisees, there's been a teaching that if you tell people long enough, they start believing it, is that God loves the rich more than he loves the poor. So Jesus had to deal with that. And the way he dealt with it is he basically started off with two different stories. One is a parable, one is a true story. He talks about the unjust servant who used, used finances to develop friendships to take care of his future. And he says, likewise, you need to do the same thing. Use your finances, use your positions to plan for the future, for your future and the future of other people. Use those as opportunities to reach out with the gospel. Then he gives the story of the rich man and Lazarus. You're all familiar with this one. Is, and his point is very simple. He reveals in context these facts that rich people are not guaranteed a place in heaven. Wealth, it doesn't prove God favors you more than somebody else. Flip side of it is poor people who suffer aren't guaranteed heaven either. He's making the point that, that he's challenging the Pharisees, challenging their teaching, and so he's going to focus in condemning that attitude about the rich. And by the way, do rich people often think they don't need to get saved? Yes, because... They're self-sufficient. They're very proud. Is that a problem when you witness to friends and neighbors? Yeah, you run into that. And so he's, that's, that's nothing new. We understand that that is a problem that happened then, and it's a problem that's today. However, the Pharisees, with that problem of self-sufficiency and pride, they, they highlighted that as a good thing. And so they, they commended that. So Jesus had to contradict that and deal with it. Then he, in Luke 17, he's going on to teach his disciples it's not the big crowd, it's the small crowd that he's going to teach. And he's going to deal with some practical areas that are problems for his disciples that they need to think about and deal with in the future when he is gone, especially, and they need to relay it. And he deals with several really important practical areas of disciple relationship. So after he's talked about that, he comes to Luke 17, he's showing how the Pharisees are bad in teaching and leading. He wants to make sure that his disciples don't do the same. And so in chapter 17, 17, he starts talking about it is impossible that but that offenses will come woe to him for whom they come it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck cast into the sea than he should offend one of the little ones and so he's going to deal with stumbling other people okay that's that stumbling others we talked about this last week but he made the observation that you will have this problem even though you are born again you still you and I still have what issue with us 
Sin nature. Okay, we still will struggle. We will still offend people. We'll have that problem. We'll hurt others. But we should be careful to minimize it. We shouldn't say, well, you know, that's just the way I am. I'm obnoxious. And people, you know, I blow my temper. I say it like I see it. You know, that, that's not something to be proud of. Okay, you've got to, you and I have got to learn to be gracious and discerning and tactful and loving. That sometimes says we don't say the way, what, we, what we think. We need to be careful. And so he is telling his disciples, be cautious, be careful. And then he talks about you know, that idea of the scandalon, that which is a bait or a, a trap that will get people snared. And you don't want to snare somebody. Be careful you don't snare the little ones. It could be the kids. Now, in Matthew 18, he actually pulls a kid onto his lap. But this time it doesn't say that. He just says, and it's not the same setting as Matthew 16, 17, 18. And so he's saying the little ones could be the young believers, the publicans and sinners he's talked about in in the parable just uh, uh, hours before. It could be the Pharisees who are just coming, some of them coming to faith. It could be, you know, some different levels of spiritual, emotional, or physical individuals. The consequence are very serious. If you stumble people, if you're not careful, if you're a bad example, if you're being hypocritical in your life and you cause somebody to go away spiritually, he says, man, it's better that the millstone was hanged about your neck cast in the sea. Better than what? Facing God's judgment. Facing God's discipline for that. Now, the question obviously comes up, well, what happens if they offend me? What happens if somebody sins against me? And he deals with that. After he's made his comments, verse 3, Take heed to yourself. If your brother trespass against you, rebuke him. I find it interesting that verse 3 starts with the phrase, Take heed to yourself. Here, let me throw this out. Does that take heed to yourself go to what he has just said? Be very careful that you don't stumble. Or does it go to what he is going to say? Make sure that if somebody offends you, you go to them and talk to them. Which one do you think it is? You got a choice. Well, you, be, you be careful what you do in not stumbling somebody and how you react to somebody hurting, hurting you. Do you think it could be both? Does it apply to both that we have to be careful? Yeah, it does. It does. And so it's, it's lodged right in between there. And could it be a conclusion to what he's just, just said? Or could it be an opening statement? I think it's both. I think he is saying, you've got to watch yourself. You know, and, and I think it's, an, a, it's a very pungent statement because often we are worried about other people's reactions and actions where we are supposed to be first and foremost watching ourselves and what we do. Okay? And, and in both cases, it really applies. So he says, okay, take heed, watch yourself. If your brother trespass against you, and he gives two commands now. The first command we talked about last week is rebuke him. In other words, take heed. You don't give in to anger. You don't give in to self-pity or revenge, telling others, embarrassing that individual, attacking. And by the way, why do we need to take heed to ourselves that we rebuke them and don't do some of these things? Because our sin nature says do these things. Okay? And so we have to be careful. The other thing that we have to be careful is not to just ignore it and steam and stew by ourselves or with our friends and let it boil over and fester and create a problem. Rather, what we need to do is we're supposed to rebuke that person. Go and talk with them. Go and point out what has happened. Let them know there's an offense. Then he says, if they repent, and here's where we stopped last week. The if here implies this. Not everybody Not every believer is going to respond right when they are rebuked. Not every believer will take ownership of doing something that causes somebody else to be hurt. Some may may not acknowledge it. Some may say they don't care. 
Okay, and so again, take heed to yourself how you respond. So you rebuke that person, you point it out. Then he gives a second command. You rebuke them, and then you forgive him. Okay, watch what he does with the forgiveness. Okay, the right response to a believer who has hurt you, who has done something against you that has caused you some difficulty where you're struggling spiritually. Um, You're struggling with attitude. You're struggling with thought. You're struggling with your walk with the Lord because you know that you and this person have an issue. And so what are you supposed to do? You, You and I, if that person repents, we're supposed to be quick to forgive them. Forgiveness is this. It is to feel towards them and treat them as God would. Feel towards them and treat them as God would. That is difficult. That takes a lot of taking heed to ourselves to feel like God did. You know, not hold it against them, not, not keep it there. It is, it is this idea. It does not mean we remove or ignore all consequences. And I think this is an important topic. You know, we were just talking about something last evening in conversation. Some people think, now I'm going to use a totally different, different topic to bring an illustration. Some people think honesty means you say everything that you know. Is that true? No. No. Okay. Honesty doesn't mean you, you think out loud. Is there wisdom at times to keep some, some knowledge to yourself and not say everything? Yes, there is. And is there anything wrong with that? Well, I'm lying to them if I don't say everything. Really? If they, yeah, if they're not asking, they don't know about it, there's... No. I mean, have you, do you ever have in Scripture where somebody did not answer questions? Jesus did it. He's asked it, point, asked, asked it. <laughs> He's asked pointed questions, and he just, he doesn't give all the information. Okay, he does that multiple times. Okay, sometimes discernment means we don't tell everything. Not to mislead, but we don't tell because they don't need to know it. Right? Okay, let me, let me give you a, a simple, simple, dumb illustration. Mommy, where do babies come from? Do they need that knowledge at that point? Are you lying by saying that they come with mommies and daddies loving each other? That's a sufficient information, is it? Well, I think it's more than sufficient, okay? Um, you know, but some, do some people feel compelled they've got to start sharing everything and all the details when it's not able to be handled yet? Okay, that's not deceitful. The same thing goes this way. Some people, I think, are misinformed or misdirected when they say, well, if we forgive, we need to just act as something never happened at all. Is there some truth to that? I say yes. Is there mistake in some of that? Let me put this illustration. If somebody's babysitting your child and they molested your child, can you forgive them? Do you let them babysit again? I'm with you. Never, ever, ever. In fact, they're never alone with my child or anybody else's. Does that mean we haven't forgiven? No. That means there are consequences. Right? Okay. So God forgives you of your sin. Let's give the analogy, the application. We're supposed to forgive as Christ forgave. God forgave you of all your sins. Yes? When you got saved? and since, Does he forgive you of all those sins? Does he still leave consequences at times? Yes. He's forgiven you. 
Let's, let's throw a sin out. Let's take one. He's forgiven the person of drug abuse, of being addicted. Does that mean he restores all the brain cells that have been destroyed? Not necessarily. He's forgiven you of, you know, of lying, cheating, or stealing from work. Therefore, he takes away all the consequences legally. Not necessarily. Okay, but has God forgiven you? Yes. Yes, okay. And so we need to forgive the way for God forgives, and it's more added to than a lot of times anything else, and so we have to be careful that we do that. Let's go on. This does, this does mean we do not keep on bringing it up. We do not make them suffer the pain that they have caused us. That's forgiveness. Forgiveness is, okay, just because, you know, Alice, this would never happen in a, in, in a lifetime. Alice has said some, some very mean things and gossiping about me and my family. Okay, and so we're really, really, really hurt. She's told some blatant outward lies about that. We're really hurt. And so that means that she comes and she says, hey, I'm really sorry, Pastor Wayne, forgive me. Yes, I do. But next week I'm going to say, Alice, I want you to come back and clean the church again. You retired from cleaning. Okay, I want you to come back and clean. Remember, you said some things about me. This is your penance. You got to come back. And I hold it over her. Is that forgiveness? No. Or I bring it up and we're in the midst of people and say, Hey, Alice is a sweet, sweet gal, but you've got to watch what she says about you. Is that forgiveness? No. That's where we violate that issue of forgiveness. We don't bring it up. We don't hold it past. But sometimes we think it's our role as the Holy Spirit to make them feel the pain that they caused me. God will deal with that. God will deal with that. It's not revenge. God takes care of it. This does mean we seek to restore the relationship to a great degree. That means there could be limit, limits on the relationship. I go back to the illustration. Would you let that person babysit again? You say no. Okay, and that would be appropriate and proper. But Jesus now in this story, he's saying, okay, you need to forgive the person and deal, deal with your attitude and deal with, okay, we can restore to a reasonable degree here and we don't hold it against them. What if they do, what if they do something against you often, multiple times? Well, here's the reaction. If that person has gossiped, let's go back to Alice. You're sitting here. Thank you for volunteering this morning. You have said something about me. What happens if she and I say, okay, it's taken care of, you know, won't do it again, and the next day she does it again? That means Alice never repented. Not necessarily. I agree with you. Okay. Could she have repented but still repeat? Let me ask you this. Have you ever done that? Have you ever repented and said to a family member, I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have done that. And then you do it again? Okay. I'm really sorry. I forgot your birthday. I am really sorry. I forgot where you are today. Okay. Um, you know, I'm really sorry. I forgot the anniversary. Could it happen again? Guaranteed. Okay. Guaranteed it's going to happen. Okay. Could I lose my temper again about something stupid? Sure. Does that mean I didn't mean the repentance? Some people say that that's true. I don't think so. And I think Jesus can back up just right here. Jesus says you have to be willing to forgive that person how often? Seven times, which implies that that person may have been repenting seven times. And it could be regenuine. So he makes the comment. He says, okay, if he trespass against you seven times, not just seven times, look at the other phrase that goes with it. In 
a day. Moms and dads. Moms and dads. Anybody with little kids. Do they ever disobey you more than one time in a day? Do they ever get out of their bed when you put them down more than once? Okay, do they, you know, does that, does that ever happen with kids? Okay, wives. Now, we won't even go there asking about your husbands. Okay, so he says that seven times a day. Now, watch the phrase. Watch the phrase. Let's go back to Bible days, okay? Seven times. This is not to be understood the maximum number. Okay, I'm keeping track. One, two, three. Buddy, you say one more thing out of line. You're up to number six and a half. Okay, after that, anything goes. Is that what he means by that? You keep track and tally? No. What he's using is an idiom. A Jewish idiom that they would say phrases, that they would, they would do. We were, we were, Preston was at our place. And it just caught me last night. He made a comment. He said, hey, look, this thing got as flat as a pancake. We use that as an illustration all the time, right? Do we measure the pancake? No. What the, what's the idea? It's flat. It's an idiom. They said, do this seven times. It's not a measurement. It is an idiom that means, you know, something's really flat. It's an idiom that says, you forgive more and more and more and more and more. Now, remember, the Pharisees did put numbers on this. The Pharisees have been saying for years three times. And it's, then you don't need to forgive. Then vengeance is yours. And so Jesus is going beyond. In fact, in Matthew, he said not just seven times, but... 70 times 7. He's using that same idea that it's just beyond Jesus acknowledge someone can be genuinely repentant but still repeatedly fail and hurt others again. By the way, I don't know about you, but I look at what's in the blue and say, I am thankful that Jesus understands this because I'm guilty of that. Okay, maybe you aren't, but I'm guilty of that in relationships where I have blown it with my kids, my wife, with some of you, and it's happened more than once. And I can be right with God and genuine, and still I can fall back into selfishness, rudeness, stupidity, and it still can be forgiven. And so I'm so thankful for that. Let's make some lessons. Take heed to yourselves means we are to take a good look at ourselves before we look at the fault in others. Amen, 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 amen. This is the important one. Number two, we are to keep a close watch over our own hearts and attitudes towards others. It's critical. We have to watch what we think, what we, how we feel towards others. We do have a responsibility towards, each, towards other believers in the church community not to hurt them, not to cause them to drift spiritually. That's our responsibility. The, uh, do we have liberty in the local church where we make our own choices for a lot of things? The answer is absolutely, positively yes. But does my liberty stop where it causes somebody else a problem? Yes. Okay, so I have to be careful. I do have responsibility. So in a way, do I have to be careful how others are affected by what I do and say? Sure do. We are to put effort into keeping others from sinning as well as keeping others from sinning against us and others like us. Okay? Let's put, say it again. We are to put effort into keeping ourselves from sinning Okay, not stumbling. As well as keeping others from sinning. Wait a minute. What do I mean by that? If somebody has offended you, you are to go to them and deal with it. Why? You're helping them not to continue to offend and stumble you, as well as not to continue to offend and stumble others. 
Okay, because they may need to be brought up short so they find out that this is something causing a problem. Let's go to this one. We are to understand that in the real world, not all of us will get along with all of us all the time. That's true, yes? Do we, don't, don't look around the room. Okay, this is one of those things where I ask the question, just keep your face straight ahead. Is it possible that you and I may have problems with others within this room? That we struggle in relationships. Yes. Okay. That's realistic. Jesus deals with reality. Theoretically, should we get along? Yes. And should we in reality try to get along? The answer is yes. But could problems arise? Yes. And when they arise, it means... Oh, it means that those Christians... It means we Christians still have a sin nature. We do. We do. Okay, we're going to disappoint one another at times. It doesn't excuse it, but it should make us who get hurt. It should help us to be a little bit more forgiving, tolerant. Okay? Let me throw this out. What bothers you more at work? When... When somebody takes things from work, what bothers you more? Okay, when it's a Christian or a non-Christian? Why the Christian? Because it hurts the Lord's name, and you had a better, you had a higher standard, right? Right. When when you hear at the lunch table people talking about lazy employees, you know you're not in that conversation. You wouldn't get involved with that. Number two, your name isn't coming up, but somebody else's name comes up. Okay, and you hear it, and you say, yeah, I understand it, but does it bother you when a Christian's name comes up? It does me, okay, because my first thought is the Christian should live at a higher level, work at a higher level, okay? Does it bother me when I know that somebody here is not getting along with somebody else? Yes. Why? We should be getting along. But do I understand it may happen? It does. And growth means we deal with it. That's growth. Okay? That we have to deal with it right. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of learning a little bit more as time goes by. I kind of, you know, um, when we were growing up, none of your families are like this, I'm sure. <laughs> okay. My family, we had six, six kids. We didn't get along when we were growing up. Okay? We get along somewhat even less as we're older because the rest of them are weird. <laughs> and they married weird people. Is mine the only family or do you have those same weird people things? Okay. And they married weird people and those other weird people that are now in-laws, they bring into they bring into our family dynamic new stuff that sometimes I don't understand. Okay? And sometimes, and I, I, I have, for the most part, my relatives, most of them in my immediate family are Christian. But there's been times when some of them have not even wanted to be in the same house as others. We were in, and I've told you this, we were in Minnesota one time visiting, and we're talking with one of our siblings and spouse. They get up from the table, and they walk out the back door, and it's like, oh, did I do something wrong? Bad breath? <laughs> You know, you know, what did I do? And so I follow them out and say, hey, did I offend you? No, but so-and-so just drove in the driveway. And we're leaving. And we're going out the back door so we don't have to see them. And it's like, wait, you're going to have to live in heaven. 
you know, but you don't want to be in the same house. Do one of you want to choose hell? You know, and so it got a little bit stupid, you know, trying to get them to understand. But it was, and now none of your families do this, I'm sure. But here I've got a Christian, Christian people who they wouldn't even want to see each other. And it was about a couch. Just a dumb couch. Who got the couch out of the basement? Who cares? Okay, it was mildewy. Who wanted it? You know. Okay, now that stuff doesn't happen in your households, right? But it's like, okay, it, it, to me it gets more disappointing because, you know, this thing happens. But I tell you the ones that it really bothered that really were hurt by that, that I didn't understand until now that my kids are getting older. But my mom and dad, they were really bothered because if they were on the phone and they say, hey, by the way, so-and-so, I don't want to hear about it. That just broke their heart. I didn't understand it until now that I'm older. I crave more than anything else that my four kids and their spouses, they get along. I want them to get along. Yes, no? Okay. And so I think God wants that of us. But when we're young and immature, we, are, we can scuffle over the couch. And it doesn't, uh, we don't understand how much it hurts the, the heart of God. So we've got to be very, very careful. Let me move on. It is appropriate to approach other believers who are creating hurts and let them know that they are doing it for their benefit and mine. Okay? It'll help them. It'll help me. That we approach, we rebuke. We are not to strike back at others, but seek to point out their offenses to them. Why, why is the to them capitalized? Not everybody. Thanks, Rich. It's not everybody else. We need to understand that in a real world, not all believers will respond to appropriate reproof when they are given the reproof. That'll disappoint us as much as it disappoints us. Not everybody repents when they hear the gospel. And it's a heartbreak. We believers are to be ready and willing to forgive those who hurt us, the prodigal's father. Let me move on here. It is not the big things we do that usually stumbles people. It is the little things, especially in context. Isn't it interesting? He goes from stumbling to forgiving. Can the lack of forgiveness stumble others and cause them to walk away? Yeah. Yeah, so we've got to be very careful. We should be willing to forgive repeatedly the same person, even in the same day, even over the same hurts. Is that tough? Oh, I think that's huge. I think that's really hard to do. Okay? The church is to be a place of care and spiritual help for one another, not a place where every, um, everyone does their own thing, no matter how it might spiritually affect others or hurt others. We're supposed to have that... that um, that, that care for one another. We are not to be an oppressive, guilt-ridden, uh, guilt-ridden community. You know, we're supposed to be forgiving one another and exercising that. A number of Christian, close with this, a number of Christian virtues and disciplines, such as forgiveness, are worth being reminded of via repetition. Has Jesus ever talked about forgiveness before? Many times. Why does he keep repeating it to his disciples? It's a hard lesson. It is a needed lesson. How often do you need to be reminded to forgive? Ah, Some of you got it down pat. But for the most of us, how often do we need to be reminded about it? A lot. Because it's a battle. It's a battle a lot. So you and I who are teaching, you who are doing Bible studies, is it wise and does Jesus Christ illustrate the truth that some truths are worth repeating time and time again? The answer is... Yes, 
Okay, we need to do that. Now, what he does, okay, he talks about not stumbling people. The disciples, I find this very interesting. After he said that, look at what the disciples say to him in this context. They say to him, verse 5, increase our faith. Why would they say that when he has just said, forgive others? It's hard to do. It's hard. And they say, Lord, increase our faith. And it's not over, oh, so I can... So I can believe in you. They already believe. He is saying to carry out the Christian life of rebuking somebody. Does it take faith to go to somebody and confront them? And faith that says the Spirit will help me to to help them point out their problem? That's faith. Does it take faith to say they've done this to me, to my family, I need to forgive them, and there's going to be an element of trust. Now, some consequences may be in there, but there's an element of trust that I'm going to have to have faith. The answer is yes. So they respond, and they say, Lord, increase our faith. In other words, they accepted his high standards. They didn't disagree with him. They say that we, and in and of ourselves, we cannot do this. We cannot live up to this standard. We know, we, it's going to be really hard to forgive it's going to be really hard to do this. Lord, we need your help. And they knew that faith from God is going to help them to have the power to live this godly level. I find that interesting. But what's more interesting is the Lord's response. The Lord responds right away and he says, okay, they say, give us more faith to live this out. And he says, if you had faith as the grain of a mustard seed, you might say unto the sycamine tree, hey, come out. Throw in the sea and it would obey you. Now what he's doing is he's basically going to use another idiom that's very common in the Jewish culture. And he's saying basically to them, you already have all you need to do this. You don't need... You know how it goes spiritually sometimes? If only we had something more dramatic and dynamic, then it would... um, we, We alluded to this last week. Okay, If only we had something to really prove the Bible, people would believe it. No, no. They don't need to see somebody coming back from the dead. They have the word. He is saying that I've given you everything you need to be a witness. You don't need somebody coming. Well, Jesus did come back from the dead. But you don't need relatives visiting like the, like the rich man in hell said. And so Jesus is, is saying, okay, we don't need dynamics and dramatics. You already have all the stuff you need. And he says you don't need more to do this. You can do this. And he says it's not the amount of faith. It's the object of your faith. Okay, it's the object of the faith. It's not whether you really believe that this ice that you're going on in Minnesota and driving over, you really believe isn't going to make any difference as opposed to I'm really scared. When it's two feet of ice, it's going to hold you. It's the object. It's not the amount of your faith that makes the difference whether it cracks or not. It's the object. Jesus is saying, I'm the object. It's not whether you have lots of faith or you have little faith. You've already believed in me. You've got enough faith to do this. The idea of the little faith is very important because that mustard seed you see in between the fingers in the picture, that's the smallest seed of that era, of that time period. And it was a common idiom to express, you don't need much. You got it. Okay, the faith of the mustard seed. Now, what I find interesting is that he uses the sycamine tree. You say to the sycamine tree with little faith, get out of the ground, go into the river. And he's using, he's using uh, exaggeration to make a point. The sycamine tree that he could be referring to, they would live up to 600 years. Okay, trees that live that long spread roots out 
a long way. Sycamine trees had a large root base. Um, a couple of you stopped by my place, and I've asked you about I have some type of vine growing at the house that we moved into. And it's a vine that the peoples before us, it, it's a beautiful vine, but this thing is, you know, gnarly, gnarly, gnarly tree trunk. You know, and it's now over the place. I noticed during the course of the summer, all of a sudden, way over here, some shoots in the grass. One night I counted 32 of these shoots all over the lawn. And it's, you know, like from here to the Jarbos away is where the tree is. But these are, this thing is shooting shoots everywhere. And it's like, okay, I'm going to get rid of that thing. But then I dug a little bit around the base and it was like, I'm not getting rid of this thing. Because it's got such a large root base. Well, the sycamine tree was like that. It had a huge root base. So his point is, by illustration, exaggeration, you come out of the ground, it's not going to come out easy. Okay. It's going to, it would be something hard to get out of the ground with all of its root base and because of its age. And so he's using an extreme illustration, small seed, large tree, make it move. His point is very simple, is that a little bit of faith can accomplish what seems impossible. A little bit of faith can forgive people. You can do it. Oh, no, you don't understand. You can you, this is my requirement of you. You have the ability. Faith is essential to living out the commands of Christ. That is a truism. You don't need something more. You don't need sp something spiritually dramatic to live the Christian life. Let me take a step further. This is very important. You had faith when you got saved. Is that same faith able to help you to live the Christian life? Absolutely. When you got saved, you got everything from God you need to live the Christian life. What did he put inside of you? The Holy Spirit. Okay. Did he already give you power, therefore, to overcome sin? Absolutely. Did he give you power to love? Absolutely. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, old things, all things. Yeah. The point is, the disciples can't say, oh, wait, I can't do it. You can. I've given you everything you need when you exercise a little bit of faith by believing in me. He says, I've saved you. You can do this. You can live for me. An important thought. Faith's presence in anyone's life enables that person to live a godly, powerful life. Tremendous thought. Faith enables you to avoid stumbling others. Take it in its whole context. Your faith, living the Christian life, can help you to curb your words, curb your thoughts, so as not to stumble other people. Oh, I've got such a big mouth. Join the rest of us. Okay, join the crowd. Okay, I've got such a big mouth. I don't know if I can ever get it under control. By faith. By the faith that you put in Christ, the power that he has given back to you in the spirit, you can do this. You can get over any hurts. I don't know. What that person did to me, I don't know if I can ever forgive. You can. You can. Okay? You can deal with it. You can grow over it. You can even do what a Joseph did. A Joseph whose brothers tried to do what to him? They weren't selling him at first. They wanted to kill him. They were trying to kill him. Then, instead of killing him, they thought, let's do something that would be... Yeah, let's say we're going to get some money out of this. He's got brothers who tried to kill him. Did he learn to forgive them? Did he overcome his, his hurts? Yeah, is it easy? No. 
No, 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 we didn't say that. But faith, you've got the power, you've got the spirit. Deal with people in conflicts. It takes faith to go to people who, have con- who you have conflicts with, brothers and sisters uh, in the Lord. It takes faith to go to them and say, okay, I need to talk to you about an issue. It takes discernment, but it takes faith. And so to really forgive those people, faith is an active role in your life. So the disciples say that. Increase our faith. He says, you got it, guys. You got it. You can do this. You can really do this. You can live for me. You can do what is right. Then he goes on to teach some more. Now what he does here in the next few verses, he's talked about not stumbling, talked about forgiving. What he does now in verses 7 and following, he gives another story that's an interesting story. He gives a truism of what's happening and it deals with something else that the believers struggle with. And that is being faithful. Being faithful. Now you guys may not do this, but some of us here do. Being faithful in prayer. I can hear about it, I can, I, can, I can study it, and there will be times where I'm not faithful in it. In soul winning, I can hear about it, I can make decisions, and then I need to be reminded of it and given, given a swift kick in the backside spiritually. Being kind to other people. There are certain Christian disciplines that are difficult to remain faithful, but we're supposed to. So he encourages us. Okay? And one of the reasons that people often say, I can't continue to serve, especially in modern day, more than any other time it seems, in this day and age, what is probably one of the main reasons people say, I can't serve like I used to serve. One is getting old. But for a lot of people, what is the issue? Busyness. Busyness. Is our life busy? Hey, let me, let me throw this back. Uh, Joe Mark was just here. Some of you were visiting with him at different places where there was entertainment, food going on. And in some of those times, some of you asked questions like this. Hey, did you ever preach revival meetings for two weeks? Okay. Why do us in churches today, why don't we do two-week revival meetings? Let's be realistic. Okay. Why don't we do tent meetings like they used to? It's too hot. Are you, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you that focused? Are you that focused on your comfort? I'm spoiled. You're spoiled. Oh, Rich, you are good. Yeah, you didn't even know it. Okay, I, I'm making fun of you, Joyce. But is, is it a reality in our culture? Okay. Why was it that 75 years ago, you could come in and put a tent up in Lebanon, and you put a tent up, and a lot of the community would show up? There was nothing else to do. That was the entertainment for three weeks. Okay? Seriously? Yes? Yeah, I mean, you, what was on TV? <laughs> yeah. 7,500 years ago, guess what? Tell this to your kids. They didn't even have video games. <gasps> yeah, yeah. What did they do? They played with sticks. Okay? They played outside. Okay, so why, why is it that today we lazy preachers say we don't want tent meetings outdoors? Are you coming and sitting in a tent outdoors when it's hot like this? When you have a choice of being in air conditioning? Let's be realistic. Is that our culture? Does that mean we're bad? No, it means we're, we live in the culture. Yeah, okay, there's another point. Let, let's, you just brought up another point. Do we live in a society that the family unit has changed in 75 years? Are there more wives working outside of the home than there was 75 years ago? So they have a full-time job away from home and then come home and they have a 
full-time job because Rich is putting off all the chores that she's supposed to be helping with. Okay, so you can keep her. Yes, you want to keep her, keep her moving. Yes, yeah, Rich, you got this down pat. I'm with you, buddy. Okay, Deb's not here, so I can say all this stuff. Okay, don't you quote me. Um, but life has changed, right? Is this a matter of faithfulness? I'm not sure. We, you know, we need to be careful. But here, I get this all. We get to, used to do this. We used to go overseas to um, Romania and when Russia and that first opened up. And we said, oh, those believers, they sit for three messages in a row. And they did. They'd come Sunday morning and they'd have three messages in a row. And most of them preached longer than me. I mean, not all three messages, but each one. Yeah, I meant all three preachers. Each one of them preached longer than I do. Woo! Okay, that's, that's long, is it not? Okay, three in a row. I mean, after one, just part of one, you're ready to, you need a break. Okay, and we're, 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 you know, we would say, some of us would come back and say, oh, those people really know how to worship. Wait a minute, wait a minute, time out. Do you guys sit under... Three messages, basically, on a single Sunday? Sunday school? Sunday morning? Sunday, what's the difference? You have a car, and there's a break. You have a car, and when you're in one of these village churches, you come and you get it all at one time, and then you go home. You don't come back at night. But we used to say, oh, those American Christians are so soft. Okay, we sometimes make the wrong standards for judgment, do we not? Modern day, they just don't know how it, what it's like to have two-week revivals. They'd be great, but they wouldn't work in our day and age because we are busy. Jesus is dealing with a topic that says, okay, be, if you're going to be busy, be careful that you don't get so busy that you forget busy serving the Lord. Okay, that's his point that he's going to go at. And he makes a comment. Interesting. He uses the story. We got about two minutes and then we'll get this done because it's short. But which of you, watch this. And by the way, the questions he is asking demand the answer already. They, they give you a clear answer. Which of you having a servant plowing and feeding the cattle will say to him when he gets home after work, go and sit down and I'll feed, feed you. Which of you would do that? What's the answer? None of you. Why not? Watch what he watch. Will you not rather say to the servant, after he's worked all day in the field, make my supper, serve me, because I want to eat and drink? And the answer to that is, would you do that to your servant? Would you make him work and do the supper after he's worked all day? Wait, wait, wait. Now, folk, there is no labor laws. This is a slave. Are you going to make him serve you supper? Why? It's his job. That's why he was, he was bought for this purpose. Now, you and I just, you know, the slave issue, we just, we react to it. But that, stop, stop being an American 21st century. Put yourself in Bible days. If he's your servant, he's going to serve you. That's the point. That's his point. He says, isn't this the way it works? He goes on, he says, you're going to say to him, feed. Or do you, verse 9, do you say to that person after they've worked all day, oh, I want to thank you. Thank you so much, Alice. You've done such a great job. I don't know what I'd do without you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm going to give you a raise. That's American. In Bible days, do they have to thank the servant? No. Why not? 
You own him. It's his job. It's his duty to serve you. Again, put yourself in that culture. That's all he's doing. He suggests that the busy servant is expected to continue serving the master. The master is not expected to thank the servant. It's not, it's not an expectation. Okay? It doesn't happen because he's the servant. That's his job. The servant serves because it is his duty to serve the master who owns him. Jesus ends up saying, so likewise you. So likewise you, my disciples. That's verse 10. Underline that point. So likewise you. When you have done all those things which are commanded, he says, don't get, don't get all bent out of shape, but this is what you're supposed to do. You aren't doing me a favor by serving me. You're doing me what you were supposed to do. Okay. But you know what's the amazing part? What's, okay. The, by the way, take note of this. When he says unprofitable, it's dealing with position, not worth, because you and I are all have value. What is really interesting here is he is saying to his servants, be faithful. Be faithful in forgiving. Be faithful in rebuking. Be faithful in, in not stumbling. Why? This is what I bought you to do. And yet, he says, the master doesn't owe you a thank you, but what will Jesus, the master, do for you one day? He doesn't owe this to you. But why is he such a different master? One day he's going to say to you, well done, and what's he going to give you? He's going to give you a crown. Now he's an amazing master. He's an amazing master. But why do we serve him? Why do we stay busy serving? Okay, It's out of love. It's out of gratitude. It's our duty to serve him. We are called servants. He is called master. Master.